This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. You were born in Haifa, Israel, is that correct? That's right. I had a conventional Israeli Jewish uh, childhood, you can say, in boyhood. Uh, and like most Israeli Jews, at the age of 18, I, I, I was conscripted uh, to the army. Uh, and then um, I went to the university, which was, uh, you know, an ordinary trajectory. Uh, um, and uh, did my bachelor uh, degree and my B.A., uh, which still was very conventional in many ways. Uh, things have began to change uh, in the early 1980s, actually around 1980 or so, when I decided that I wanted to continue my academic studies as an historian outside of Israel. So I went uh, to England, to the University of Oxford, <laughs> and... Um, I had the fortune to be uh, supervised by an Arab supervisor. And uh, through him, I met uh, Palestinians, although I, I've met Palestinians before, but not on equal footing. And uh, that began a journey that had many stations of going out of the Zionist uh, framework or men mindset. Uh, it also were, were the years when I started my research as a PhD student on 1948 uh, in the ar various archives that were available. And in those archives, I, I found um, evidence that actually the narrative I grew up on, that I was uh, taught, that I heard at home, uh, in the media, even in my university, uh, was uh, something that uh, I could not substantiate through my research. And actually, many of the uh, claims made by my Palestinian friends actually uh, uh, turned out to be true uh, once I looked at declassified documentation from 1948, and I wrote my dissertation on 1948. And... Um, and that really began a trip outside uh, the Zionist narrative, first of all, as a professional historian, writing books that challenged the Israeli version of historical events, not just on 1948, but the whole history of Zionism from beginning to end. But that was also uh, uh, accompanied, accompanied by, by social and political activism. Uh, that led me to be uh, part of the solidarity movement with the Palestinian liberation uh, movement. And uh, and uh, that led to eventually, into, uh, it's a long story made short, 2007, uh, uh, the, I could not teach anymore in the Israeli academia. I had to leave uh, and I left for England where I'm teaching nowadays. Which is at the University of Exeter, is that correct? That's right, University of Exeter, which is in Devon, southwest uh, uh, England. Would you mind giving me a very brief history of the formation of Israel and I suppose how it links to the Nakba? Yeah. Um, you, we have to start uh, in, in Europe uh, in the late 19th century when a group of uh, Jewish thinkers and activists uh, are looking like many other Jews for a solution, first of all, for anti-Semitism, which was on the rise, uh, and working under the sense 
that uh, there's no safe place for Jews in parts of Europe. And they were proven right, of course, as we know, uh, as happened uh, as uh, when the Holocaust came. They were also thinking about changing the definition of Judaism to, to nationalism. And they were looking for a place where they can be safe and also create a, a secular Jewish nation state. And they uh, saw the Bible, the Old Testament, as a proof that the only place where they could do it was in Palestine. They were aware that someone else was living in Palestine, but uh, they were now beginning, and this is the early 20th century, they were adopting the kind of colonialist perceptions of indigenous people as people with no rights, people who could be moved for the sake of a better, of a more, much more sublime project, which is the project of revival of the Jewish nation. And uh, for that, they needed an ally. And they found the ally in Britain after the Second First World War. Uh, all kinds of British politicians, some of them Christian Zionists, namely people who believe that the return to the, of the Jews to Palestine is God's will. Some anti-Semitic who were, willing, who were very happy to support the Jewish immigration to Palestine so that the Jews will not be in their vicinity. Uh, and uh, eventually the British Empire decided to support the project of a Jewish nation state in Palestine in the famous or infamous Balfour Declaration of 1917. Now, uh, the problem was that despite all the support from Britain and uh, the ability under British rule of Jewish immigrants to come and settle in Palestine, uh, uh, the, the Jews who arrived were still a, a tiny minority. And at the same time, the Palestinian majority was already very much uh, honed on having their own nation state uh, as the native people of Palestine. And uh, that meant that uh, for Zionist leaders, there were two options. I either accept the idea that they are guests in Palestine and maybe work out something uh, of their own future within a future Palestinian state, or to think as they did eventually, like a settler colonial movement, and uh, contemplate the removal of the indigenous population so that they could uh, implement their idea of a secular Jewish nation state, which is something they have arrived at eventually in the 1920s and began to see as the only option forward. Uh, they didn't have the capacity to implement it until 1948. When Britain decided to leave Palestine, uh, uh, the Zionist movement was powerful enough in military, economic, and political terms to try and remove and expel the indigenous population. Uh, and they already began it when the British were still responsible for law and order in the first half of 1948 and continued in even more intensive way after the British left in May 1948. And uh, this was an ethnic cleansing operation uh, that ended in the expulsion of half of the Palestinian population, the demolition of half of the Palestinian villages, 500 of, out of 1,000, and the destruction of most of the Palestinian towns. And on the ruins of all these towns and villages, Israel either planted trees or built a Jewish settlement. So that's how Israel came into being, actually, by by uh, ethnically cleansing the, the Palestinians and by uh, being able to do it without any fear of international 
condemnation. The, the only thing that they had to fear was a response from the neighboring Arab states. And indeed, these neighboring Arab states, uh, halfway through the ethnic cleansing operation on the 15th of May, 1948 dispatched some troops to try and stop the ethnic cleansing. But the Israeli army at that time was powerful enough to repel them and uh, uh, took over 78% of Palestine, which was uh, Israel today without the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and created a, a Jewish state and uh, with a very small uh, Palestinian minority because they didn't have the capacity to expel everyone. So some people remained and they didn't have the capacity to take the whole of Palestine. The West Bank went to Jordan. The Gaza Strip became under Egyptian rule. But um, that's how, how the, uh, and the Palestinians, of course, call these, this ethnic cleansing, the Nakba, the catastrophe, uh, while the Israelis call that year the year of independence. So what you're telling me is that the formation of Israel uh, is shrouded in blood. In blood, and uh, I would go further than that. I would say that Israel was created through a crime against humanity because ethnic cleansing is a crime against humanity. Uh, you you cannot uh, justify expelling people because of who they are. Uh, that's and, and and as and it's shrouded in blood as well because people are not willingly cleansed. Mm -hmm. And they uh, resist. And when they resist, there are massacres. And we know about uh, 40 massacres occurred during the nine months of the ethnic cleansing operation where a few thousands uh, Palestinians have been massacred by the Israeli troops while expelling them outside the boundaries of historical Palestine. I'm sure you have received a lot of resistance with that. No, that wasn't Palestinian land. It was Jewish land. Yes, uh, this is uh, based on the idea that uh, because 2,500 years ago, roughly, for 70 years, in that history of 2,500 years, for 70 years or so, there was uh, a tribe called the Hebrew tribe that uh, was maybe ruling uh, historical Palestine. Who knows what happened 2,500 years ago? Uh, but to base this uh, demand for the land on, uh, you know, this kind of claim is, is really uh, ridiculous. Um, nobody can come to someone else's home and say that that home belongs to them because they they're used to live there 2,000 years ago. In any other context, it would look ridiculous. But of course, uh, uh, this was something that appealed to the Christian Zionists, the evangelical Christianity, and they liked the idea very much because it looked like part of the divine plan to bring back Jesus. Uh, it, uh, it didn't apply, appeal, sorry, I mean appeal, not apply, appeal. Uh, it didn't appeal, interestingly, to really religious Jews. Orthodox Jews uh, did not believe that uh, a secular Jewish movement can temper with God's will. Not that they denied that Eretz Israel, as they call it, as a holy land. But they said, we can only return when God decides that we return. And there's no indication that he wants us to return. Uh, so it's, it's, a kind, it's, it's, a, it's a curious thing. We have these Jews who become secular, in many ways stop believing in God, 
and yet using a, a God, you know, as a, uh, saying God promised us the land, but we don't believe in him. Uh, but, but that's how it works. It's not the only case in history where a, a political movement manipulates faith and religion for political uh, reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, they really fell in love, these Jews, with the idea of being a nation like all the nations because Europe, we have to remember that, Europe did not allow Jews to be uh, legal members of their own nationalities. That's why they were looking for a new nationality. I mean, apart from Britain, mm. apart from Britain. But in most European countries, being a Jew was uh, an obstacle for being accepted as a European. And they wanted very much to be European. So they, so they created a new Jewish-European identity, but at the expense of Palestine and the Palestinians. When you talk about Zionism, Professor, what are you talking about? Zionism is an ideology, first of all, and I think this, this is um, elementary truism, but the one worth uh, mentioning, because uh, people equate Judaism with Zionism, and they equate, therefore, anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. Now, partly is the fault of Israel. Israel wants people to equate Judaism with Zionism when it serves its interests. But it uses, uh, uh, it claims it's not the same when uh, it fit, it, it doesn't fit its, its, its uh, kind of national interests. But for us, it's important to, first of all, to remember it's an ideology. So it's not a faith. Secondly, ideologies uh, uh, go, undergo changes with time. Same happened to Marxism, capitalism, any ideology you can think of is never uh, static it's dynamic so zionism began as a as an ideology looking for safe haven for jews and redefining judaism as nationalism but it turned into a settler colonial ideology that is until 1948 namely trying to take as much of the land of the foreign land as possible without the people without the native people on it as possible then when it becomes an, a state ideology, it reminds us much more about apartheid South Africa, where it becomes an, 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 a, a racist ideology in the sense that Jews enjoy democracy in, in Israel, but anyone who's not a Jew cannot enjoy democracy because this is just a democracy for Jews, or if you want, it's a master's democracy. Uh, and, and this is justified by Zionism, namely that uh, this whole fabrication that we talked about, that this is a Jewish land because in the Bible it says it's a Jewish land uh, and uh, the Palestinians are aliens who uh, entered uh, someone else's home. It's kind of a mirror image of what the reality really is in terms of history. Okay, so you've spoken about um, a land without a people and a people without a land. What does that mean? The, the Zionist um, uh, leaders were were aware that Zionism appeared as a settler colonial movement at a time when colonialism lost its uh, its positive image. Uh, actually, the, the Zionism appeared as a colonialist movement when the world began actually to decolonize. Uh, it was really going against the grain of history, and. Um, 
uh, in order to justify uh, this, uh, at least some of the Zionist leaders were claiming, well, actually, we're not colonizing anyone because it's an empty land. And they used their scholars and their pundits to, to bring the evidence that Palestine is empty. Um, it didn't hold the water for too long because uh, too many people visited Palestine after the Zionist project began. And it was clear that uh, it was not an empty land. What was terrible is that the Zionist idea was that if it's not an empty land, we can make it an empty land. And that was ominous, you know, because if the, 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 the fact that they gave, kept talking about Palestine as an empty land or a land without people, when they were already there and they were already so there, the people, the, the, the Palestinians were 90% of the population in the end of the First World War, and uh, two-thirds of the population in 1948. So when they kept talking about Palestine as an empty land, it was very ominous. It, it meant that they, if it's not empty now, it will be empty of Palestinians uh, in the future, which they partially succeeded in doing. So what you're implying is that part of the Balfour Declaration was to take the land of the Palestinians and give it to uh, the Israelis? Oh, yes. Well, no Israelis in that time, but to the Zionist movement, yeah. Yeah, mm. Britain gave something that did not belong to it to someone that it didn't belong to it either. So it was kind of a deal where I'm, I'm, I don't own a house, but I promise you a house that I don't own, and someone else already is living there. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah, that that's that's the, basically what it what the Baltimore Declaration is all about. Now, as you know, I uh, am a South African. I'm a white South African, so I'm a consequence of what you would call traditional colonialism. You mm -hmm. you you differentiate between traditional colonialism and settler colonialism. Would you mind just elaborating? Yeah, yeah, a, 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 a traditional colonialism where colonies built by an empire with a mother a kind of metropolis and was meant to help the the empire uh economically strategically uh, politically and in most cases uh when the empire uh, disintegrated the colonialists went back home and they had a home to go to and and the liberation movement included pushing back the colonialists to their home homelands to their original homelands. Settler colonialism is a movement of European refugees, actually, uh, um, who were persecuted for their religious reasons, cultural reasons, economic reasons, uh, and Europe didn't want them, as happened to those first white settlers who came to North America and to Australia and, and New Zealand. And, um, and they were uh, looking for rebuilding a, a new Europe that didn't want them. And the problem was that they always chose places where someone else lived. And the great uh, late scholar of uh, settler colonialism, Patrick Wolfe, says that uh, in the contact between the settlers and the indigenous people, the logic of the elimination, the logic of the elimination of the native uh, was activated. So, so they saw the, the natives as an obstacle. Now, you can see the difference between traditional colonialism and settler colonialism. Traditional colonialism doesn't want to eliminate the natives. It wants to exploit them. 
for the empire. The settler colonialists don't want to exploit the natives. They want to get rid of them, to remove them. So it's a very different project. Uh, both of them are, are inhuman towards the native people, but it's a different kind of, of a vision. There's another difference. Uh, uh, when Britain and France created colonies, they wanted to, to uh, kind of bring their culture with them to the people. I mean, there was this famous burden of the white of the white man, you know, the, or the burden of civilization and so on. Settler colonialists want not only to eliminate the native, they want to expunge them from history, to erase them from history. So what they do, they don't only destroy them, they also appropriate their history, their folklore, their customs. Uh, as Noam Chomsky says, uh, the Americans went further than anyone else with this appropriation when they called their weapons in the names of Native American tribes that they have eliminated, you know, like the Apache helicopter or the Tomahawk uh, uh, missiles. Israel hasn't gone. Oh, right. They, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they haven't called, uh, they didn't call uh, their tanks in Nakba or Dir Yassin <laughs> yet. Uh, <laughs> you never know. So, so it it is it is different. It is different, and the and the main problem is that really after a th third generation, there is no home country for the settlers. They are native; they are nativized by their long presence. As a good Palestinian friend of mine says, Azmi Bishara, uh, if you can expel the settlers in the the first wave of settlers, then you can do it. But if you fail to do it, you will have to coexist with the third wave, a third generation of settlers. And that, that's where Palestine and Israel is now. No one is going away, neither yeah. the Jews nor the Palestinians. Uh, and they have only few options uh, between living together or trying to destroy each other. When I talk about Israelis and Jews, I'm essentially using the terms interchangeably. Is that okay? Or, or are there differences politically? Yeah, it's it's a good question because there are Palestinian citizens of Israel. So they hold an Israeli idea. Some of them will tell you, yes, my citizenship is Israeli, my nationality is Palestinian, my religion is, if they are, if they are religious, is either Muslim or Christian. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I think it's not entirely accurate academically, but I think nowadays... Yes, most Israelis would be Jews, but you have to remember there are people who define, it's a minority, but there are people who define themselves as uh, Israelis first and foremost, even when they are Palestinians. Uh, or, yeah, are, which is part of the problem of the, because you have to remember that there are one and a half million Palestinian citizens of Israel. These are the Palestinians who remained inside Israel after 1948. Then you have the Palestinians in the West Bank who are under occupation. And you have the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who are under siege and now under war. And you have the Palestinians in the refugee camps and the exilic community. So the different Palestinian uh, groups. There's one group that has the Israeli citizenship, but they are living, but Israel discriminates against them. Although they can vote and elect, uh, they are uh, severely discriminated in every aspect of life. And uh, it, it has become worse since 2000. And it, it's much nearer to an apartheid uh, system than it was, let's say, before 2000. Mm. Uh, it was discrimination was there before 2000, but not not in the level 
that we see uh, today. Well, I was just about to ask you uh, the question that often comes up is, yes, well, Israel is a democracy, and so you'll find many Arabs living there in harmony with the Jews, but you don't see it the other way around. Yeah, well, they don't live in harmony. And they, uh, they are, as I say, they're, they're discriminated. In, two, in two, 2018, Israel passed the nationality law that resembles very much the apartheid law in South Africa in 1948. This is a law that claims that while Palestinian citizens of Israel may have individual rights, they have no collective rights whatsoever. So there, it's a law that says that there's only one nationality between the river Jordan and the sea, which is a Jewish nationality. And uh, uh, anyone who does not recognize that the whole land of Palestine is Jewish is actually acting against the state and uh, therefore could be, you know, could be subjected to uh, legal uh, procedures. Um, and that is that is kind of a, a de jure situation that already was there before, but it was just legalized. It was mm. legalized. So no, they they, um, they they are denied access to many of uh, uh, the occupational fields that are connected to national security. They are discriminated against in scholarship uh, towards the university. Uh, the, the criminal uh, system uh, treats them very differently than it treats the Jewish citizens. And there's so many other aspects. Uh, and, uh, uh, and and as I say, this is not static. That, that Every day that passes, this kind of discrimination is becoming worse and more and more legalized uh, compared to, to, to the past. Well, just carrying on with that theme, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has said that Israel is an organic democracy with Jewish ancestral roots. Yeah, well, I, it's first of all, it's important to know that this democracy for 56 years denies the most basic human and civil rights to millions of Palestinians under its rule. Now, with such a large number of people as being citizenless citizens, so to speak, people without any basic rights uh, cannot be a democracy. It doesn't matter if you give one group uh, democratic rights, but you deny, uh, you know, and they are half of the population between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean. You deny them the most basic civil rights, it cannot be a democracy. And as I said, this is the more, the most visible part of the of the fabrication of Netanyahu's statement. But the, as we said before, if you go deeper, even t towards those who supposedly have a better situation, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, as I just explained, also in their case, I would uh, challenge anyone who would say that they're living in a democracy. And they, they themselves would tell you that they don't think that they're living in a democracy. What is Palestine? Yeah. Um, Palestine is, uh, first of all, a name of a country. Israel is a name of a state. And that's very important to, to make a distinction. So Palestine is also a state now, but that's a Bantustan state, you know. Mm. Uh, this is the Yeah. It's a Bantustan state, so it's not a real state. Um, so Palestine is the historical land that... Uh, 
you know, has been since the seventh century Arab and Muslim, apart from a short time when the Crusaders ruled uh, Palestine. Palestine, modern Palestine, is is the land where the people of Palestine since the early 19th century, like so many other people in the Arab world, were thinking about uh, a, a different uh, future where they ruled for they were ruled for 400 years by the Ottomans, and they were thinking about uh, a future of uh, a united Arab Republic or United Arab Kingdom, depends who you're talking about. And that is that is a land where people have a special Arab dialect that distinguishes them from other Arab groups, but they also have a lot of common with other Arab groups. And therefore, a lot of Palestinians, like a lot of people around the Arab world, are still thinking in pan-Arabist way, hoping that one day maybe uh, there will be more unity in the Arab uh, world. Uh, but um, that is that is something you cannot change, a name of a country. You can change the name of the state, you can change the regime, but uh, you cannot change the name uh, uh, of, of the country. And, uh, and you can say that the different historical period, there were different states or different political regimes on, on that uh, country. But that's that's the country of Palestine and the people who live in it until 90 until 1948 were all called Palestinians, by the way, including the Jews. Uh, and since 1948, the people who came from abroad, the settlers, do not see themselves as Palestinians, and they try to redefine the na the uh, the identity of of the country. Uh, but uh, the native people resist and do not accept it. Are the Palestinians therefore natives of that entire region, including Israel? Yes, yes. They are the indigenous people of Palestine. By the way, if about 10% of them uh, were Jewish. So there, there were native Jews before the arrival of Zionism. Small, maybe even less than 10%. Uh, there were a small number of, of Jews who, by the way, regarded themselves as Palestinians, spoke Arabic, regarded themselves as Arabs. Uh, but Zionism uh, uh, seduced them, so to speak, to give up their Arab identity and think about themselves as, 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 as European Jews, um, despite the fact that they lived for centuries in Palestine. You said uh, the, the idea of Zionism was quite appealing. Uh, how? It was appealing, uh, first of all, uh, it was not that appealing before the Holocaust, one should say. Uh, a very small number of Jews in the world supported Zionism, I would say, until the rise of Nazism and fascism in Europe in the 1930s. Uh, in America, until 1920, very few Jews regarded themselves as Zionists, and that was mm. one of the biggest Jewish community in, in the world. So Zionism didn't have a strong appeal uh, to the vast majority of Jews until the Holocaust, or the rise, even before that, the rise of Nazism and fascism. But the, the moment the Zionists claimed that Jews are not safe in Europe mm. was validated, it became more popular, undoubtedly. And, uh, the, um, and, and but it, even then, I'm not sure it appealed. I'm thinking about my own parents who came from Germany. The world did not want to accept the Jews who escaped from Nazi Europe. The, America closed its gates, 
Britain closed its gates. They had nowhere to go. Palestine was the only, for some of them, Palestine was the only option. So I wouldn't say they came to Palestine because it appealed to them. It was the only choice of saving themselves from uh, the extermination of the Nazis. Uh, but later on, I say, after Israel uh, became a state, and especially after the 67 war, when Israel looked like, you know, a, a David that has defeated the Goliath and so on, I would say that half of the Jewish population in the world became ensued by the idea of, of Israel. Um, but there's still a lot of many, many Jews who don't regard themselves as Zionists. And there are many Jews who are very critical of Israel and of Zionism. Something that strikes me as an enigma, uh, particularly in, in the United States, is Christian Zionism. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's a very old movement. It's older than Jewish Zionism. In fact, people don't know that Zionism was first a, a Christian project before it was a Jewish project. Uh, and it began uh, in the, uh, well, there were signs to this already in the 16th century, but it began in earnest at the beginning of the 19th century. And it was an evangelical Christian idea that um, uh, in order to bring uh, uh, the millennium in which Christ would rule the world for 1,000 years, uh, there are certain things that have to happen before that. And one, one important stage was, was the return of the Jews to, to the Holy Land. Uh, well, eventually they will have to be converted to Christianity or uh, being barbecued in hell. And, uh, and that um, a vision, uh, at first was on the margins of evangelical Christianity, but it became quite uh, uh, an important group as the years went by. And uh, by the way, Balfour himself was a Christian Zionist. He also believed in in that. Uh, uh, and 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 not 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 Balfour. I'm sorry. The 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 British Prime Minister Lloyd George it was uh, who 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 gave in his time the Balfour Declaration was given was also a Christian Zionist. So you already see from the First World War onwards, Christian Zionists occupying very important positions in America and in Britain, and that influences their policies towards Israel. Um, uh, today, Christian Zionists are. To my mind, even more important than the Israeli lobby in America. It's, uh, you know, conservative estimates talk about 70 million people who regard themselves as Christian Zionists. I think the number is higher. We had the vice president, Michael Pence, who's a Christian Zionist. We had the president, George Bush Jr., who's a Christian Zionist. We had the secretary of state, Pompeo. We had the one or two uh, British prime ministers like Tony Blair, who are Christian Zionists. But that's a powerful ideology. Trump uh, also. Interpretation. Sorry? I think also Donald Trump. Donald Trump, of course. Of course. Though you never know with him. He, <laughs> yeah, but, but definitely he, he, he surrounds himself with Christian Zionists. I, I don't think he's a devout uh, Christian He's, he's devout to other things, uh, but but uh, but but definitely he sees uh, the Christian Zionists as the core group that supports him. No doubt mm. about it. That's his base. This is his electoral base. The current commentary that's happening right now is that Israel has a right to exist and a right to defend itself. Well, uh, first of all, 
the right to exist is is not a recognized right in international uh, law. You know, uh, states exist. Of course, they exist. They don't exist because they have right or they don't have right. They exist because they have power, because they're uh, they are recognized or they are not recognized, and so on. So, uh, is I think this is not this is a hollow statement. My state has the right to exist. Now, I, I would look at it the other way around. Why do you have to have such a strong lobby to convince uh, um, uh, Jeremy that uh, you have the right to exist? Not even North Vietnam goes to South Africa and try to convince you that they have the right to exist. It's the only state in the world that demands that it, its right to exist should be recognized. But that's on the issue. The issue is why do you think your right, you, your right to exist is questionable? Why is it? And they don't have a good explanation because they don't want the right explanation. And the explanation is what we started the conversation about. Because you, you are built on the ruins of, on the continued ruination of the Palestinians. That's why. That's why there's a problem. As for the right to defend itself, yeah. But to defend itself, the two things which we said. You cannot defend yourself by breaking international law. You have to respect international law when you defend yourself. And secondly, defending yourself is also a right that the colonized have, not just the colonizer. Uh, and, and therefore, it's uh, it's kind of a, a boomerang to use it as a justification. Um, but of course, the Western leaders, uh, you know, accept the Israeli narrative. Every Palestinian is that fights against Israel is a terrorist. Not a freedom fighter, and uh, and therefore any action Israel takes against these so-called terrorists is a self-defense. Uh, in the seventy-five years of Israel's existence, Israel used power in order to oppress and control people, not in order to defend itself. Uh, sometimes it defended itself against our Arab armies that uh, tried to help the Palestinians or. I don't know, acted on their own interest. That happened in 73. Uh, but that's the only war that is, and maybe in 48 when they repelled Arab armies. But usually Israel uh, military operations in this century are directed against the Palestinians and they are not self-defense. They are a violent attempt to uh, impose yourself on millions of people uh, and to force them to accept life without basic human rights and civil rights. The popular narrative is that the Arabs, the Muslims, want to wipe out Israel, and that's why Israel needs to be so aggressive. Yeah, well, the Muslims is uh, uh, billion, one billion point six, I think, Muslims now in the world. Uh, most of them are not interested in Israel. And not very few of them want to wipe out Israel. Um, and the only Muslims who have uh, a direct interest in uh, facing Israel are those Muslims who are oppressed by Israel. So it's not it's not a project of wiping someone. It's a project of liberation and decolonization. Uh, there is no Muslim project of eliminating Israel. Sometimes I think the Iranian leaders are making a mistake and they fall into the trap of talking about uh, eliminating Israel where, where they should talk about change of regime and decolonization. So there are definitely some Muslims who talk about it, but 
the Islam as a whole is a religion. It's not a political movement. It's not an ideology. It doesn't deal with eliminating states. It, it deals with the relationship between the faithful and God and the relationship of the Ummah and so on. I don't want to give a crash course on Islam now. But uh, uh, this is this is not the issue. Israel is facing violence because of its colonization, not because of someone's religion or someone's uh, fanatic religion. They are facing uh, a resistance, sometimes armed resistance, because they occupy, they colonize, they ethnically cleanse, and sometimes even genocide. So if I'm following correctly, what happened then on the 7th of October was a response to the occupation. Yes, it was a response, but it had uh, a side to this that uh, was uh, a violation of, of international law. It was a, a, we don't have all the facts, but from already what we have, uh, there were uh, war crimes committed through uh, the act of resistance. And that happened in history, you know, both the colonizer and the colonized can violate uh, international law when they are using violence. And that is one case like this. So yes, there, the occupation and the siege explain the operation, but it does not justify uh, some of the atrocities committed by the Hamas uh, in the morning of the 7th of October. And of course, Israel's response uh, uh, and the barbarism and the genocidal policies of Israel cannot be justified as part of self-defense against uh, against them. If that is the real picture, mm. uh, then it's a, a war crime. They should not have committed that. Uh, but also Israel now commits, and this is this is definitely uh, with the full of evidence. Israel has been for forty days now committing one war crime after the other since the seventh of October. Are you saying that uh, Netanyahu is a war criminal? Oh yes, I think so. I think he's responsible for this policy. He 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 uses language of uh, wiping out the whole population. Even the language itself is criminal. But now it's followed up by actions. Can you please explain Hamas to me? Yes, Hamas is part of a wider Middle Eastern phenomenon, which is called political Islam. Uh, the disappointment of secular uh, uh, people in the Arab world, including in Palestine, from modernization, from the failure in some cases of secular liberation movements to liberate uh, Palestine or other parts, uh, pushed people into thinking maybe there is an alternative. Uh, that is shouldn't be emulated from or shouldn't be uh, followed from the West. It should be much more rooted in the local heritage and religion and civilization. And that brought up to the fore movements like the Muslim Brotherhood in 1929 in Egypt. And Muslim, the Muslim Brotherhood had branches in Palestine. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is not is, is divided into those uh, among them who believe in preaching and waiting uh, patiently for the world to become more just, more Muslim as well, and, and liberated. And those who 
believe in being more proactive, including using violence and armed struggle when necessary. And, and they're all over the place. The Muslim Brotherhood chapters in, in Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and some other countries, and in Palestine. Now, uh, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Palestine until 1987 was much more involved with charity, social work, and much was not very politicized. It became politicized for two reasons. One, one is that the secular forces of the liberation movement, led by a movement called Fatah, failed to deliver, and people were looking for uh, political Islamic examples, uh, very much also inspired by the Iranian revolution uh, and, and the success of a political Islamic group to take over a country such as Iran. And uh, secondly, they were supported by Israel. Uh, Israel uh, thought that uh, the political Islam would be easier to control than the secular and leftist liberation movement. So they gave them, they helped them to increase their power at the expense of the secular. Of course, they regretted it <laughs> later. The Americans did the same, if you remember, when they wanted to uh, bring down the communist forces in Afghanistan, they supported the jihadists at first. As we know, uh, Osama ibn Laden at first trained in an American, uh, you know, uh, training courses before he became enemy number one. Uh, so uh, it is, both a political movement, a military or paramilitary group, but it's also part of the return to religion of many people uh, in the world who see tradition and religion as a way that helps them to deal with the difficulties of life, uh, with uh, uh, big issues and small issues alike. And it will always remain part of our life. People would, we will, in the Arab world and in the Eastern Mediterranean where Palestine is located, people always had to, sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully, to coexist between people who are religious, people who are secular, people who are traditionalists, people who are less traditionalists, people who belong to one sect or the other. Uh, there are times when it was possible to do it with, when imperialism from the outside did not interfere. Uh, and nationalism, in a way, also interfered in this, our local Arab nationalism. Um, so uh, Hamas is part of that history, part of that trajectory. Of course, it's now focused on removing the siege from Gaza as a short term, and it has long-term visions of liberating the whole of Palestine, and even a longer vision of having a caliphate that is the old... Islamic, uh, so on. I don't know how many of them really believe in it. And uh, uh, if you read, it's interesting to read the statements of the leaders of the Hamas. They tell you we are focused in liberation. We are not. We are not uh, thinking about the day after, because we will not be there ourselves. So we want to bring the day after, but we are not totally occupied with the day after which is an interesting remark, yeah. Yeah, but what's happened now is that they are seen as a terrorist group and uh, they seem extremely aggressive and violent. Yeah, well, first of all, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Mandela was uh, 
defined as the arc terrorist by uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, You know, the leaders of the African liberation movement in Ghana and Kenya were defined by British as arc terrorists. So this, this is something which is temporary. And and is not uh, uh, anchored in any serious analysis of of Hamas. Definitely, the behavior on the seventh of October is something that worries uh, people. Uh, but uh, I can give you two examples from history that explain why you cannot take out of context the violence. First of all. Uh, you have to understand that this is a symptom of violence. This is not the source of violence. And, and the, one example is the, a very famous rebellion by African slaves in 1831, I think, uh, led by uh, an African slave called Nat Turner, uh, who slaughtered families of slave owners. It was terrible. But nobody said that because of the violence of that day, uh, slavery was okay, or the struggle against slavery was not valid. Even the armed struggle against slavery was not. A second example is uh, from July 1962, when the Algerian Liberation Movement troops massacred brutally uh, a community of settlers in the city of Oran in Algeria. This was unacceptable, but nobody said that Algeria should not be liberated or that the liberation movement is not a just, uh, is not doing a just struggle uh, for decolonization. Something else that you've spoken about, Prof, is the um, the way in which the Israeli government uh, tries to maintain a particular demographic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, well, it's a very interesting, uh, maybe not totally relevant today because some of the Israeli politicians are Messianic Jews who don't care whether the Jews are majority or not because they're sure that they have the way of getting rid of all the Arabs. But most of the Israeli politicians have a demographic worry all the time. And the demographic worry is, ironically, is because they want to keep Israel as a democracy. If you want Israel to be both Jewish and democracy, you have to make sure that the Palestinians are never a majority. Otherwise, you can, or the other way around, the Jews always have to be a majority. Now, they always uh, uh, use the same means to make sure that demographically the Jews are the majority. And then they can keep claiming that Israel is a democracy. In 1948, before the first election in Israel, the they expelled hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who should have been citizens of Israel and made sure that they didn't come to the first election. So only a small minority of Palestinians voted in the Israeli elections between 48 to 67. In 67, they incorporated a huge number of Palestinians, but they decided not to give them citizenship. They also did not allow them to create a state, but they also thought they don't have the power to expel them. So they left them in this limbo that we are familiar with in the last 56 years under military occupation. Similarly, in the Gaza Strip. Um, Now they have a different worry. The Palestinians inside Israel have a natural growth that brings them into a high proportion of the population. And that's my greatest worry, that the next 
step, what would they do if those they, they themselves said you have the right to vote would become a sizable number? Uh, what would they do then? Would they rob them of their rights? Would they expel them? I mean, this is not for tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. This is for the next uh, uh, 10, 10 years or so, uh, which the world has to be aware of. Um, Israel can only retain the idea of a Jewish democracy by total violation of the international law, by expelling people, by robbing them of their basic rights, by enclaving them, sieging them. But it doesn't have any democratic way of ensuring the democratic rights of those who are not Jewish in the Jewish state. Only the means that were used in apartheid South Africa, and even worse, as some people who were leaders of the ANC and came to see the West Bank, like Desmond Tutu and Ronnie Cassidis, they said this is, does not compare to South Africa in, during the apartheid. It's far worse. Prof, where to? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, in the short term, looks awful. More bloodshed, more oppression, more killings. Uh, I have some hopes for the longer term, uh, in the sense that uh, the, the, the kind of Israel that would appear after the war in Gaza would be very difficult to support, I think even by those Western governments which cynically support Israel. And I suspect that uh, very much as in the case of apartheid South Africa, there will be a movement of solidarity from the civil society to the political uh, elites. But it will take years. It's a long, long process. Uh, what I do hope that when this becomes a reality, namely that not only some groups in the world are calling for boycotting Israel, that some governments would seriously consider sanctions, then more Israeli Jews would understand, like I do, that uh, the Zionist ideology, the so-called Israeli democracy, is not something that could be accepted in the 21st century as valid morally or even practically. And then maybe they will also, from within, begin a movement of change because if the pressure from the outside will not work and there will be no change in the Israeli society from within, eventually the Palestinians, the Arab world, the Muslim world would find a way to deal with it. But this would be not a very nice scenario. So I think for everybody's, for the benefit of everyone, um, we should look for a nonviolent way of bringing down a regime that is unjust and replace it with uh, freedom for all, uh, including those who were expelled. Uh, this is a normal idea of a state. This is not an abnormal. And this is what the, most of the Palestinians are craving for. And I hope that one day it will uh, take place. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.